question, Nate, is are you a gargantuan or a gargantuan't? Uh, Think about it for a while. I'll come back to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Godzilla Pod War Hour. My name is Michael Kelly, and with us as always, Mr. Nathan Bear. Good evening, Nathan. Good evening, Mr. Mike. Yes. Uh, we are here today to talk about certainly one of my favorite kaiju movies, and I think really... When you talk to people who are fans of, of these kind of films, tonight's movie always comes up on the list of, of their favorites as well. Mm -hmm. We are speaking of the sequel of sorts to Frankenstein Conquers the World, War of the Gargantuas, mm -hmm. directed by Ishiro Honda from uh, our good friends at Toho. Another co-production, actually, uh, with uh, Henry G. Sepperstein, right. uh, who, who also co-produced... Uh, you know, Frankenstein conquers the world. Mm. So, and this is a much better film, I think. Uh, more yes. effective, definitely. It's um, you could say it's, it, it seems like a refinement of some of the ideas from Frankenstein conquers. Well, the not world. just a ref refinement of Frankenstein conquers the world, but a refinement of Ishiro Honda and Subaru's technique. I yeah. think of the Toho kaiju films, this is a true diamond. Uh, I guess in the rough uh, yeah. of you know just all the many many films. Um, so uh, similarly, I guess you could say parallels maybe Kurosawa's career, who you know started around the same time as uh, Mr. Honda. The year before in '65, Kurosawa makes a film, Redbeard. Not maybe his best or most memorable film in terms of you know fan base, but it is a summing up of his perfection of the art, where he has his. You know, mainstay actors uh, and behind-the-camera collaborators, you know, all working on this great big project. And I think for Mr. Honda, this is the same. And just like Kurosawa's Redbeard, after War of the Gargantuans, you know, the quality kind of slips. Yeah. This is like a peak of technical perfection. Yeah. Everything from the camera work, the acting, it's uh, the, the models, it's all... You, you don't reach... Uh, these standards after this, yeah, you know, you absolutely. watch Destroy All Monsters, you know, they, they're good films, but there's a huge difference between this and Mr. Honda's last film, Terror of Mechagodzilla, which, you know, well-directed film, Terror of Mechagodzilla, but this is well made. This yeah. is well, this is well all around. You know, yeah. The, the, the special effects, the music, the acting, they all blend together near seamlessly to create a very, very fun film. Yeah. You know, you look for the peak, uh, like, Godzilla movie. Mm -hmm. And as far as what, all the things you were just discussing, like convergence of technique and, and the story and all that stuff. And it's sort of hard to tell because, I mean, the, you know, the conventional answer would be, like, either Gojira or, you know, Mothra versus Godzilla. Right. Or you know, Gidra. Yes. And, but I think in some ways, tonight's movie kind of surpasses those movies in, in a way where there, there's, there's the true sort of accomplishment of what they were setting out to do was realized in, in, in fully in, right. in this film. It doesn't feel like, because uh, with Monster vs. Godzilla, you know, it's two monsters that already existed or just sort of thrown together. These are two new monsters. This is like their own world they've created. And there's there's different stakes mm -hmm. in this movie. There's different rules. We'll get into that a little bit later. But like, 
um, it just seems like the really the closest they came to making a perfect giant monster movie. Right. And this isn't to say that this can compare to, let's say, the original Godzilla in terms of maybe story. Oh, not at all. You know, th- this <laughs> no, is... not at all. <laughs> you, you, you have to understand, this is... We're talking about Mr. Honda's... Like, if we're going by, like, maybe the auteur theory that the French came up with in, I believe, the late 40s, um, you know, the idea that, you know... It, the director is, you know, the, the, the lead of, you know, every film and that every film he's a part of has a part of him in it. Right. If we're going by that standard, then this would be like uh, Kurosawa's Red Beard, like a peak of technical perfection. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And while most people, let's say with Kurosawa, would go with 1954's Seven Samurai as his best, and I think with Ashiro Honda, we'd go with 54's Godzilla as his best. Um, that's going by Godzilla films and popular um, reception. This, however, like Redbeard, is as I mentioned the you know the perfection of technique. Right. Th- th- this is the film where everyone involved is so uniformly excellent. Yeah. That it frees up Honda in a couple of opportunities to really create, and you know, I might be risking overstating this or, or whatever, but like. Art. He's got. Yes. He's got a couple of scenes that transcend the kaiju genre and almost horror movies, and just sort of like are like you look at it and you're like, oh wow, well that's something. Yes. That's really interesting. Yes, and, and, and it, like, it goes. It pushes boundaries. It pushes boundaries. You know everything. You know you you see bits of it. You know Monster Zero and all that stuff. It feels like they were all working up to this. This they had the right amount of money, the right amount of time, the right push. You know they were just. You know this is the factory system at its best when all the right people come together to make a really good film and uh yeah so this is uh, just a wonderful piece of work flawed of course definitely uh you know in the science fiction genre it is really hard to come up with the film that you know has a taste like a good you know i don't know creme brulee something like that you know just something that's uh, delicate uh with a really rich taste yeah there's um I would say the flaws would be anytime Russ Hamlin <laughs> talks <laughs> to uh, Kimi Muzano about stuff. We'll get into that for a second, but like to, to to hit back on like as far as technical level, it's like it's obviously you know it's one of Afuke's uh, best scores, mm-hmm. but like and, and all those you know Tanaka and and all all, all the way down like all the levels mm-hmm. of and and a small sort of example of what I'm talking about would be like. When they were creating the sets to this movie, because a lot of this movie takes place outdoors in sort of like the mountainous ranges mm-hmm. around Japan, and the sets look absolutely convincing. Mm-hmm. They look like it looks like they're in a miniaturized forest with like you know sort of mountainous hills and, and things and creeks and, yeah. and trees and heavy sort of things. And there's like, yeah, I watched uh, the documentary "Bringing Godzilla Down to Size," which is available as a bonus feature. On the uh, Rodan and War of Gargantua's uh, War of the Gargantua's um, uh, DVD special edition DVD that came out a few years ago, mm-hmm. and they had one of the guys who worked on this movie, mm-hmm. and he was like, you know, we had so much money with War of the Gargantua's that all those scenes out in the woods, we really created those trees. Those aren't fake trees; mm-hmm. those are those are miniature pine trees called Himuro uh, Suji. 
are, are the names of the trees. They're mm-hmm. Japanese, like, miniaturized pine trees. So, like, uh, bonsai? Yeah, it's sort of like a bonsai, but they had to, like, cut off the root system because they could tell, like, you can tell it's, like, a little little plant. Because, mm-hmm. like, so they cut off the, the their uh, roots, and they um, cut off the roots of this thing called the goldenrod. The goldenrod roots have what look like to scale a uh, very mature and sort of older and more robust root systems mm-hmm. but again miniaturized so they cut those off the top of the goldenrod does not look anything like a pine tree so they cut off the roots of that and uh stitched them to the Himuro zugi so you have what it looks like a pine tree mm-hmm. with like a full root system like perfectly recreated then they would bury them they made hundreds of these yeah. things and they buried them all over the set. They would only last for like two days, and then they would die. But for those two days, they had a perfectly recreated miniature forest. And they didn't. They, they did this to every one of those trees because they didn't know, you know, which tree the gargantuas would pull up to like hit each other with or whatever. Right. Because Honda, like, he hadn't figured it out how he's going to film it yet. Yeah. So they just like. Like the amount of time and like man hours put into that, it's. It's. You know, that's what you talk about when you really talk about like. This was the peak of the craft of it, uh-huh. and and they had the, uh, the the time to do that and 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 the tools to do that, right? Um, which you know, in a few short years, definitely by the time you know you get after destroy all monsters and 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 into the seventies, the money falls apart. It all falls apart. Yeah, but like the, so, this was sort of like kind of the climax of of that. But you feel it. And but, this yeah. is where, like, you and really feel like it, it was uh, put to good use. They, they went and, and the size, the scale, not not just the the trees, but the fact that there's a vastness to both the, like the city fight scenes and the forest fight scenes. There's like it's clearly they're using like the big the big studio sound stages. They're allowed lots of room to roam. You know, in some of these, in some of the other films, you know, it's clear Godzilla is just like a foot away from like <laughs> the the back of the set. Godzilla versus Gigan immediately jumps to mind. Yes, what you're yes. talking about, or the end or, of uh... or Godzilla versus Megalon, right? Where they're like clearly fighting against like the back of like you know, I guess you know, white, you know, a blue <laughs> right, right, background right. with you know. Spotchy clouds right. on like dirt. Yeah, yeah. It's and, just and, like okay, I just shovel the dirt from the front of the right. studio in, into the interior. Um, yeah. You know. From the casting standpoint, we've got uh, Russ Tamblin sort of stepping in for Nick Adams. Yes. Um, and I think that was Henry uh, Henry Superstein's um, call on that to have like another lead like American actor mm-hmm. in the in the lead role. I believe this was right after Nick Adams passed away of yeah. uh, what a drug overdose. Something like so, that. Uh, yes. For those of you who don't know, Nick Adams was uh, one of the members of uh, Rebel Without a Cause. He was one of the thugs. Uh and uh unfortunately it seems that nobody who worked on that movie died a good death. Uh everyone seems, you know, Natalie Wood most famously, uh, James right. Dean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I forget who played Plato. Uh, everyone, you know, no, no, nobody died in their sleep. I think in that film. Yeah. Uh, so, but he was dead, except for maybe Nicholas Ray. <laughs> uh, but he, well, he, whatever the reason, he did not participate. So you get Tamblin on the scene, big time. Now, Russ Tamblin yeah. at the time he had, you know, he first came to fame. He was in a program called The Son of a Gunfighter, mm-hmm. uh, and then he had gone on to. You know, he he did a lot of stuff. I mean, he and West Side Story, West Side Story, and and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did some amazing uh, 
physical dancing stuff mm. in, in some of the greatest musicals ever made. Mm. Um, so <laughs> some of the greatest movies. I mean, West Side Story yeah. is one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, I think that's that's a pretty widely, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, sort of considered, you know, a masterpiece. And, so like, yeah, and he was a major. I mean, he was a riff in that. So like, yeah. that that's a huge part. So I'm not sure if this was the level of of. There's like that was like six years after West Side Story he does mm -hmm. more of the gargantuous. So I'm not sure what happened there from a career management standpoint. Unlike Nick Adams, Russ Tamblin is still alive. Yes. He has a daughter, uh, Amber Tamblin, uh, who has uh, achieved a level of, of fame and success uh, on her, in her own right. Mm -hmm. and, and actually both uh, father and daughter were both in uh, Django Unchained mm -hmm. uh, recently, the Quentin Tarantino film. Russ was uh, the son of a gunfighter, and then Amber was the daughter of a son of a gunfighter. So mm -hmm. that's pretty awesome. <laughs> And of course, he's all, most importantly, he's in Twin Peaks. Yes. So, like, you know, that's the key. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, I want to say that he does a good job of this, but he seems very close to falling asleep at the beginning of yeah. every scene he's in. Like, yeah, he, he, he is not Nick Adams. No, he is, he is he, not. He, he's, he, like, his palm is sort of slumped over onto the side of his face, and he's got his, you know, index finger and forefinger, like, rubbing his temples during every line delivery mm -hmm. in this movie. And it's just sort of like, he's always, like, slumped over in a chair and being like, oh, let's go get Antwis. Yeah. yeah, maybe we can find him with these, find themselves. That's what we got to do, you yeah. know. It's just, it's very, like... Yeah. Um, like very non. I, I like, can see like Honda like being very animated behind the yeah. camera, and then Nick or not Nick uh, Russ is just you know saying that. I, uh, okay, I didn't understand the word you said, but uh, all right, I'm just gonna do this. <laughs> um, who knows? Maybe he was suffering from back injuries from, uh, from West Side Story or something, and he just like <laughs> he does some crazy shit in that movie. Yeah. All right, we can't talk about. We have to move on. Um, Kumi Muzano, <laughs> welcome. Yeah. As always, she's a welcome addition to the cast of any, uh, you know, Honda movie. And she's here. Um, she is not playing the same character uh, that she was playing in Frankenstein Conquers the World. She's playing a different uh, character, um, which is weird. Kind of how uh, the, the girl who was Junko in uh, right. Godzilla vs. Mothra, the actress also plays a reporter... In Ghidra, the three-headed monster that knows the scientist, but she is not the same reporter. <laughs> yes, somehow. Uh. <laughs> and uh, Tado Takashima has been replaced by Kenji Sahara as sort of the trifecta. Although this is the most sparse and unconnected the like Toho trio of lead characters has ever been in one mm -hmm. of these movies. Because most of the time, it seems to me. It's Russ Tamplin and Kumi Muzanel. Yeah. And, and and Kenji Saharo's character is the, who's sort of the third scientist right. is off kind of doing his own thing in a lot of the scenes. And I know yeah. some of the scenes for the American version were refilmed to just like include Russ Tamblin. And then they'd film another version for like the Japanese version where like he Russ Tamblin yeah. wouldn't be there. <laughs> Russ Tamblin free. Yeah. Also, Which is probably why the American version is what, two minutes longer than the Japanese Yeah, yeah, cut. it's more Tamblin. Um <laughs> Uh, Russ Tamblin had an interesting sort of job. Uh, you know, he joined the club with Clint Eastwood on the uh, Spaghetti Western uh, movies and, and so forth, where he had the unique opportunity 
to dub himself for the entirety of his role uh, for the 1970 uh, American distribution of this film. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, unfortunately, they hadn't kept any record of what he actually said on the set. Uh, So there was a lot of scenes where Tamblyn just didn't know what his character was supposed to be saying, so he would just sort of ad-lib stuff that kind of fit. Uh, That's why in one scene he's like, I don't know, I send a went into the ocean. Maybe he's chasing a whale or something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's, uh, there's, there's little things like that that kind of pop up. I mean, I guess we could talk about the gargantuas themselves, Sanda and, and Gyra? Yeah. Gyla? Gyra. Gyra. I believe it was pronounced Gyra in, uh, in the, uh, film, uh, Godzilla against. Mecha Godzilla, one yes. of the Prime Minister, who I believe was played by Kumi Musano. Yeah, yeah, played by Kumi Musano. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, talks about uh, Gyra, and they show footage of Gyra attacking the uh, airport. Um, yeah, uh, that that's how I believe it's supposed to be pronounced in Sanda, I believe is yeah. pronunciation for the other. Um, very interesting concept. Uh, you know, one good, one bad. And I think that was like an idea that was kind of going through in Frankenstein versus Baragon, but kind of they stretched the limits of that. The idea that like, oh, no, 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 our monster is good. The other monster is bad. Where in this, I think they simplified it by having one monster have the same physical attributes of the other besides that one was green and the other one was brown. Yeah. Whereas Baragon looks nothing like Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> like, Baragon looks freaking ridiculous. Yeah, you know, I mean, I could understand, you know, the moon shiners in the uh, Japanese Alps confusing the two. Yeah, of them. yeah. But, uh, you know, th- this is more like, you know, no, it's the same height. It looks the same. Oh, one's green, one's brown. Ah. Yeah. Very, yeah. very easy to keep track of. Yeah. You know, it's nice. It's very, uh, saves time. Yeah. Um, it, 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 you know, depending on the reading, of the film because if you read it like it's the Frankenstein monster from Frankenstein conquers the world Mm -hmm. who is now his appearance has just changed. And I'm assuming we're thinking that he's the Brown one. Yeah. And then that, um, Gaila is, has grown out from that, that hand. Right. That was, that was cut off in, in Frankenstein conquers the world, like retro grown backwards or whatever. Mm -hmm. If that's your reading of it, then this has been a very rough year and a half for Frankenstein. Yeah, that, that hand. Well, though, technically, it was five years. Oh, yes. Because remember, Frankenstein versus Baragon, for some reason, even though it was filmed in 65, took place 15 years after Hiroshima, which puts it in 1960. So this being, uh, what, 66? Technically, take you could say it takes place in sixty five. Yes, you know, so five years after Frankenstein. What, so that, whatever the time, uh, yeah. whatever the time passage amount, uh, Frankenstein, who is referred to a lot in the Japanese version, he's, mm-hmm. he's referred to almost exclusively as Frankenstein until it is revealed that there's two of them. Yeah. Um, for what you know, whatever the reason, Frankenstein, he went from sort of roughly looking like. Uh, I'd say like he looks sort of like some forty-one lead vocalist uh, Derek Wilby 
in uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World to in War of the Gargantuas. Now he sort of looks like uh, Grizzly Adams at the end of a three-day rum bender, you know? <laughs> Just sort of like, oh, give me more! You know? Which is good because the one of the flaws you mentioned la- last time on uh, Frankenstein vs. Baragon is the fact that there isn't enough makeup on Frankenstein so it looks just like a guy, a, a guy yeah. beating up a guy in a suit. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of messes with the scale because yeah. he looks too human. Whereas yeah. with this, because they have enough makeup and effects, you really feel them as these monsters. Now I think that it's just... Frankenstein really was destroyed at the end of that movie, and this mm. is just cells that grew up from both of them. One, one patch of cells grew up green and bad, and the other grew, grew up brown and good. Although that doesn't make any sense because of the flashback, when she's like, you know, raising the young... Yeah, I had actually uh, forgotten about Santa, that. And for... it looks like Elf. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, Smarf from Too Many Cooks. Yeah. <laughs> So we start off with, you know, a big storm, and there's this boat in the midst of the storm, uh, and we find this tentacle making its way to the sole uh, pilot of this boat. Yeah, um, the guy who's manning the, the, the wheel. Helm. Yeah, yeah, the helm. Uh, so the the tentacle attacks him, and we, you know, cut to outside, and there's this big fucking octopus. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, big fucking octopus. Uh attacking the ship, you know, trying to sink it and trying to eat this man. Well, then the tentacle lets go, and he's confused, so he looks out the window, and there's the octopus fighting Gyra. Yes. And that's that. And normally in this situation, it's like, oh, that's the hero. Right, right. You know, like, oh, this, you know, Frankenstein has come back, and he's going to save us, you know, because he's good. Now... <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he kills or you know get gets rid of the octopus. I guess he doesn't really kill it. He yeah. just like tosses him aside, <laughs> and then blow you know sinks the ship. Yeah, like uh, like a kid really mad at his bath toys. Yeah, it's awesome. He's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like unless you rip an octopus in half, there's no real way to conclusively defeat it in battle. It's like yeah. it's like fighting a pillow. Yeah, really. Um, but like, yeah. Um, the green gargantua. 
uh, throws the squid away. Uh, sorry, throws the octopus away, and then, as you said, destroys the ship, which I thought was awesome because it's just like immediately uh, sets you off balance as far as like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so the guy that you see. Uh, who was who was being attacked by the octopus? He survives. Yes, and and it, it's sort of revealed that he's the only person who survives. And he is the next scene is him being questioned by Kumoyama, who is a uh, who is a police captain or whatever. Yes. No longer an entrepreneur. No longer an entrepreneur. <laughs> you made me borrow my own money and charge interest. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Greatest line ever. Oh God, we are nerds. Uh, anyways, yeah. So, but. When this guy's being interviewed, he says that the the thing was Frankenstein. Yes. In the Japanese version, he says very clearly, it's, it's, it looked like a Frankenstein. You know? Right. So like... And in the English version, they keep using the phrase gargantuan. Yeah. Gargantuan. Yeah. You know. Uh, and they, they keep running that into the dirt. Yeah. Uh, and this is because, like, they wanted to remove in the, in the English version all references... Mm-hmm. To uh, Frankenstein conquers the world, and the fact that it's a Frankenstein, you know, uh, just so people who maybe didn't see that movie yeah. could could follow along with it. And it's weird because this movie sort of functions as a sequel to that movie and its own thing at the same time, depending yeah. on which version you watch. And they both do it pretty successfully, which is kind of very unique. Kind of like Kurosawa Sanjiro, it it follows the character from the previous film Yojimbo, but Really, you don't have to watch Yojimbo to understand right. Sanjiro. Uh, and Sanjiro, oddly enough, is based on a book. Yeah. Yojimbo wasn't. Uh, so. so it's revealed that these guys are smugglers or were smugglers. Yeah. And, and the guy has a flashback in the hospital bed. And there's a very cool shot where you can see uh, Gaida, like coming after the guys mm-hmm. in the water. You yes. know, like very... It's very frightening, too, because yeah. it's like the scale is done perfectly. Like the matting of the shot, I can't figure out how they did it because it can't be forced perspective because uh, the gargantua is big in the background right. and the guys are like small in the foreground, yeah. which is not the, like normally it's the reverse yeah. of that. So like they, they had to be matted at some point, but right. I can't tell. And it's water. Yeah. So like they, which is they, did, they did a perfect mix. mat on water. Yeah. So like, you know. That's that's you know that's in the first five minutes of this movie, uh, but yeah they, that scene kind of plays out the flashback or whatever and and the gargantua methodically <laughs> comes up and eats these other four guys yeah. you know like like just boof grabs them from the water and um, which really like adds kind of the cold element to this yeah. because in in. The, the death is so much more... Right. Um, well, they find the guy's clothes, and they're all yeah. tore up, and they, they're all stained with blood. Not since, like, Rodan, I think, has, like, a monster specifically gone after a person. Yeah. In the other ones, like, even Ghidra is not, like, killing people. Uh, he's more or less going for... Citywide. Yeah, citywide. So there's yeah. just destruction on a large-scale level. Like, right. this is, like... Serial killer level of like precise <laughs> right, right. killing, precise killing, killing like, you know, gonna implied, eat you yeah. that I'm going to eat you, that yeah. I'm going to eat you. So, um, so at this point, like they, the point is that they they get the information from this guy that it's a Frankenstein. So they contact um, Doctor Stewart, mm-hmm. played by Russ Tamblin, 
and his um, assistant slash co-professor, uh, Kubi Musano. Mm. And at this point, they, they talk about, they don't think it's the same creature mm. as their Frankenstein. And this is where things start to get very, very confusing, because um, they have a flashback of when... Uh, the Frankenstein was younger and like they were raising him or whatever, but it's okay. In, in war, the gargantua is the flashback that they have the, um, the gargantua. It's the brown gargantua. And he, he looks like a little kid. Yeah. He looks like he's like eight and it just looks like an eight year old wearing a teddy bear suit Mm. basically. Or as I said, looks like Smarf from too many cooks. Um, gotta love Smarf. Have to love Smarf. Anyways, there's, there's something happening here, which is very strange. And then, like, Kumi Musano comes back and says he was always very friendly. And before he left, he came and visited me personally and mm-hmm. then left. Now, that is referencing a specific scene in Frankenstein Conquers the World. Right. right? Where Frankenstein comes up to, like, her thing. Yeah. But this is a different character. Mm-hmm. She has a different name. Yeah. And as we have just seen in this flashback... It's a different monster, sort of. Yeah. Or he looks totally different, and it seems to be a different age. Like, the, the you know, if it would have actually been a true flashback to Frankenstein Conquers the World, mm-hmm. the, the time that Kumi Muzuno and Frankenstein spent together was sort of uncomfortable and charged with this bizarre sexual energy that was, like, not good. And yeah. Nick Adams was, you know, close to breaking a chair over Frankenstein's head mm-hmm. many times. This is back when Frankenstein was, was human size. And um, there's just the, the the weird dichotomy between the two scenes. It's just like in this film, the flashbacks like it's the little kid in a teddy bear costume, like drinking milk, and she's yeah. like helping him drink milk or whatever. And Frankenstein conquers the world. He's like just staring at her breasts yeah. and like looking all like pervy and just being like, you know, or whatever. And like, and then they throw him in a cage or whatever. But it's just like, uh, it's like they're playing. It's like the filmmakers are playing a game of telephone. Yes. Where they're like, they described what happened in the last movie to like a different group of filmmakers. And they're like, oh, just shoot something that looks like that. Yeah. The only problem is these are all the same people. Yeah. It's not like Italian Star Wars or Turkish (laughs) Star Wars where it's just like, okay. This is the same actress. This is the same director. This is the same, like, everything. It's all exactly the same. So it's like... So this seems to be some kind of, like, Buddhist middle path. Like, how do we, like, reach people who like the last one and reach people who didn't give a fuck about the last one. Or didn't one. see it at all. Yeah, or like so don't know about it. This would be like kind of like, okay, well, if we do it through this prism, then some people can assume it's either A, this, yeah. and if they don't assume that, then they'll assume that it's its own thing. What it reminded me of was that episode of The Simpsons where it it went into like what actually happened and then it went into like what Homer Simpson remembered it as and like he remembers Marge being this like like crazy monster or whatever and like it was all totally different because like I guess Homer has brain damage or whatever but like they show two different scenes but they're like one is just like way way different and that's essentially what happens here. So basically Rashomon. Yeah. This is the Rashomon of... I don't mean to spend so much time on this but it's it is truly bizarre. Like it just seems like they won't even... Like, if you wanted to make this a sequel to Frankenstein Conquers the World, just don't even have the flashback. Yeah. You know? 
And and you could just be like, oh yeah, when he was younger, he was weird or whatever. Going out of the way to show this different monster in a different setting, but with the sa- it's sort of the yeah. same thing going on. I mean, at you the could same go crazy time, you, about you do it. have to remember the fact that this is before YouTube, and uh, YouTube has changed everything. <laughs> because now, thanks to YouTube and thanks to like our blurred lines of you know copyright rules, we can now like go back and like specifically say, hey, you notice in this scene in this movie, that's an exact ripoff of you know this scene in this movie. We can do stuff like this. Nobody had that technology. You had to to remember a movie. You had to watch it many. Many times. You had to hope and pray he was playing in your town, you know, and that you didn't have to work when it was playing. You know, it, it was going to be there right then, you know. And if you got to see it once, then you were lucky. And you had to remember it. Uh, yes. Now things have changed. Yes. You know. You know what? Okay, I see where you're getting. So. Like, maybe people wouldn't remember even yeah. though it was only a year yeah, ago. Even though it was a year. That, <laughs> if that, you're watching that's it in Japan, yeah. you'd be like, oh, I have the poster of this movie. Yeah. Frankenstein that looks real different. <laughs> they sort of have the weird kind of tie-in with the last movie, but that also at the same time distances itself with the last movie. All the characters' names are changed, by the way. and um, But it seems to be this weird vortex of Kumi Muzuno is like the link yeah. uh, between both movies. But anyways. Uh, meanwhile, they're like, more and more like serial like murders done by this giant monster, including a beautiful underwater shot where, and, and frightening. Yeah, frightening. Uh, like upsetting. Like, yeah, like <laughs> oh my god, there yeah. is no god because uh, <laughs> he looks no down and, and there's Gyra just like sup, bro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Gyra is upsetting. Gyra is upsetting yeah. to look at because his eyes are humanized yeah and he's got like a mouth with like teeth and they're like jutting out and yeah it's like he looks very much like a, a sort of primeval man or yeah whatever. and, and so it's, it's it's what he's doing is basically like feels like cannibalism because he's a humanoid yeah yeah. you know when like ibra does it or someone else it's like it's it's frightening in a different way because it's not human it's right. not anthropomorphic there's there's more as an animal there's more signals sent to us of, of like you know of, of direct danger mm-hmm. that are that it can be communicated with the way that these monsters are designed as opposed to something like Megalon where it's just right. like got the big dumb bug eyes and yeah. it looks impossible and ridiculous mm-hmm. um, so there's just and that works at a sort of a kind of a subconscious level with right. these guys and there's you know the, the the guy is the two guys are in the fishing boat and he's the buoy's caught on something he looks overboard and we get this overhead shot of guy in in the water and it's like yeah what, what the fuck and, and they they you know, they both immediately yeah. go overboard or whatever. Into his mouth. Into basically. his mouth. And they have another uh, scene where these people are, like, pulling, like, the wreck of a boat up or something. And it's uh, really... I think, it, I think they're pulling in fishing lines. Oh, yeah. That, that's what I was thinking. And it, it it almost mirrors the scene on Odo Island when, yeah. when, the, uh, when the girls are uh, bringing in the fishing nets and uh, the, the old man is like, oh, you know, Godzilla must have... Uh, you know, caused all this, and the, and the girl's just like, shut up, old man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> times have changed. Uh, so this is kind of mirrors that, only this time, when pulling in the fishing net, guess who? Yeah, yeah. The green gargantua rises from the water, and it's another amazing mat shot. Mm-hmm. It's another flawless... Uh, execution on, yeah. on the uh, on that, and and it's in the middle of the day, yeah. and there's like a ton of sunshine. Yeah, so it's very upsetting because yeah. like 
It makes it look very, very real. Um, now, in the meantime, they go back to the lab, and Russ Tamplin is like, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I don't think this is our gargantua, because, uh, hey, Kumi Muzano, check out these footprints of uh, that I got from some people over by a mountain. Um, I don't, I don't know when I got them, but I'm showing them to you now. I forgot about them for about two months, but here they are. Let's go, let's go to the mountains right now and investigate. Yeah, <laughs> and like they, they briefly mention in a scene, it's almost throwaway, but uh, at the beginning, before interviewing the um, the boat, the boat survivor was uh, that like they found put footprints in the Japanese Alps, uh, but he like dismissed it. As like just oh they were on LSD oh okay so, I must have missed that that, that was in the American <laughs> that, 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 cut that, okay that makes uh, it... it it could have been completely different in Japanese <laughs> he could have been just saying oh I'll have some coffee thank you very much that uh, that makes it slightly less arbitrary that Russ Tamlin would just take these these yeah. uh, these <laughs> mountain yeah. footprint photos out and yeah. totally random he's like no this organic gargantua over here yeah so I, I use them as bookmarks in my playbook <laughs> <laughs> um so. They go to a mountain expedition. Mm -hmm. uh, Kumi Muzano and um, Tamlin, Kenji Sahara, stays behind and is working uh, closer with the people involved with kind of where the green gargantua is attacking, more towards the, the coastline. Mm -hmm. And um, and Russ Tamblin um, is terrible at, at dressing for mountain expeditions because he, he looks like he's appearing on the Lawrence Welk show to sing Moon River. <laughs> he's got like a fucking smoking jacket, you know, like it's like, dude, you are in no way dressed for this expedition. Just and like, like you can tell like, he's like, yeah. whoa, this jacket was a terrible choice, yeah. you know. He should have auditioned for Doctor Who and that. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like everyone else is dressed exactly yeah. correctly, but he's just like, no, I'm Russ Damlin. <laughs> I'm going to be in Cabin Boy. <laughs> You know, back off. Um, so anyways, they find the footprints. They mm. rediscover the footprints. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of different sequences where groups of reporters are asking the scientists, you know, is this is this one, is the green gargantua your Frankenstein? Is yes. it like, is this the Frankenstein, you know, and like, and, and Russ Tamlin, they're all animists, like, no, it's yeah. not. You know, they just miss it out. Which there's no way they could know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they they have no proof yeah. of any kind. They're just like, no, just, yeah. eating people just doesn't seem like something <laughs> they do. You know, it's just like, and, and I will be honest, and and that is one of the weak spots in this yeah. movie. Absolutely, is it seems like for the first, I'm going to say third of the movie, every scene with Russ Tamlin, Kubi Muzano is a theme and then variation on that of the lines, do you think this is our gargantua? I don't know. Maybe it is. He's evil yeah. now. He's good now. You know, it's like those four lines in some sort of combination repeated like that exchange is repeated like And he doesn't have times. the Nick Adams intensity no. or believability no. where, you know, you, he could get away with saying yeah. something and, like and, that. And a lot of it falls pretty flat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that is, you know, that is sort of a flaw. Um, but anyways, yeah, Tamblin is, you know, he's, he's, tr he's trying. I RT, guess. full RT. Full RT. Um, we now come to the Haneda airport sequence, which is just full of just some great stuff and is pure, uh, just like cinema 
like kaiju heaven basically i mean it's like there's no there's almost no talking in it and it's just like there's no characters really it's just like you've got the haneda airport which is sort of cut off and you've got the green gargantua guy that like comes up out of the water Mm. and the way it's filmed is like absolutely convincing and looks really really cool and um, it's very kind of sparsely done. Mm-hmm. Like he's not systematically going through and destroying every building at the mm-hmm. airport. He's just sort of knocking stuff over, which sort of reminiscent of like Mothra versus Godzilla or like kind of the dumb Godzilla where he mm-hmm. stumbles and like that's why he's like destroying stuff. He's not really trying to do it. You know, yeah. It's just sort of happening. Part of that sequence he goes up to a building mm-hmm. and like bends down, looks at the window. You see this woman screaming, she's saying, Oh no, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you normally in one of these movies, that's where like the missile hits it in the side of the head to distract it. Or like, you know, another monster will come. Yeah. This time he just punches through the window, grabs this woman. And it's like looking at her for a while. And still you're thinking, okay, well, he, this is going to be like his captive, like a King Kong, Fay yeah. Ray type thing or whatever. And then like he kind of brings it up to his mouth. And then you just cut to like the clouds. Yeah. And, like the sun coming out from like the clouds for no reason or whatever. And I mean, the reason is to establish yeah. that he's afraid of light. But like if you don't know that the first time you're watching, you're just like, it's just cutting to like yeah. the sun. And it's like him. And, and basically the gargantua picks up a woman and, and shoves her into his mouth and eats her. Yeah. You know, and then coughs up like part of her clothes. And, um, and, and just sort of looking up at the sky and it's just sort of like, I am a monster, you yeah. know, like I, like this is it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're watching this and you're just like, this is crazy. Like yeah. this never happens in one of these movies. It's very know? disturbing. It's unsettling. very, very upsetting. And it, uh, falls in line with many of like the complaints of some of the, previous films and whereas like you know there's no consequences to like right. the destruction right and in and you know gigan once again comes to mind you know there's just <laughs> no consequences just yeah. stuff happens yolo uh <laughs> so uh and then immediately after the eating that woman he like sprints across the airport and like jumps in and that's one of the things i love 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 about the design of the gargantuas is that they're essentially just like men i mean it's it's humanoid mm-hmm. in shape you yeah. know there's not that much in the way of tails or shit it's not like Gidra where the actor is essentially they can't they can't do anything you know right. these guys are really mobile and they can run around and they can move mm-hmm. and he runs and jumps off this thing and it's just like a really sort of that is also very shocking because it's just like you know these monsters don't move mm-hmm. quickly yeah. in, in, normally in these movies they just they're kind of like just slump along or yeah. whatever. So like, you've got this sort of lethal intelligence. He eats someone. Plus speed. Speed. And it's like this is a real threat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're gonna have to kill this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just just great, great stuff. The reporters are sort of give the scientists the business. They talk to Kenji Sahara and they're asking, "Boy, you know, you could have told us that the Frankenstein wasn't going to be near the coastline. We could have avoided this tragedy yeah. and all this stuff." And uh, they they kind of keep holding all these scientists like responsible almost for all this stuff. Yeah, that uh, is way out of their control. Um, yeah, and but, uh, you know because they discovered it, so therefore they're uh, yeah in charge of it. <laughs> um, um, but there is some some useful information that comes out of the 
the attack on the Haneda airport. And that is uh, exposure to light. Yes, very upsetting. Yeah. So we cut to Japan. Sorry, we cut to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rust Hamblin, Kubi Muzino are there to study the mystery of what makes Frankenstein's cells immortal. I don't know why they have to do that in Tokyo. Maybe there's a really good sushi bar there or something, yeah, and that okay. helps them think. Yeah. Um, but, they got the really nice electronic microscope. Yes. <laughs> but then they uh, start in with uh, the performance at this nightclub of The Words Get Stuck in My Throat. Yes. By um, this this young lady who was a singer. Uh, yeah. Thompson, I believe, was her last name. Um, it's a very 60s song. It's a very, very 60s very song, and, and Fukube wrote the music to it. So mm-hmm. it's sort of an interesting revelation that he could have just done pop songs if he wanted to. Yeah. Because I think it's a pretty good song. I mean, I think her voice isn't the greatest. Probably not. Uh, it's a bit grating. <laughs> but, um, you know, she's... Uh, and she's... She's not. She's not like gorgeous or anything. She's she she like, kind of feels like a, a someone who would be like cast as a you know background in like I Dream of Jeannie or something like that. Yeah, she uh. she she seems like if you saw her in real life, she would be beautiful. But in movies or television, she's ugly. It's one of those situations. I don't know. Who, you know, she she had a career, so she did just fine. And this song is actually pretty popular uh, in some circles. Yeah, uh, the words get stuck in my throat. And anyway, Among she's. Other things. She sings the song in its entirety. Just while we're talking about words, well, I'll, I'll get back to that. Yeah. Uh, I'll uh, talk the, about the that point, later. The, the point is, is that this scene uh, brings up, uh, once again, uh, Gira's uh, love, uh, and I think all monsters love for, uh, you know, scrawny white women. Uh, <laughs> Redheads. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, so. <laughs> yes, Gira, like, they turn off all the lights yes. because she's singing, and then Gira shows up behind her, like yeah. right behind her as the song ends, and grabs her, and based upon what you just saw, you're like, he's going to just eat her yeah. now, you know? Like, this is crazy. And they remember that the lights hurt him, so they all blast their lights or whatever. And he drops her from, like, 20 feet. I know, it's awesome. Maybe she survived. Maybe she's dead. <laughs> Maybe like... she's got a brain hemorrhage, and she's, you know... So, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, nobody gets off scot-free in this deal. No, 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 no. Um... um... So yeah, so, yeah, so uh, uh, Russ Tamblin off to the mountains. Yeah, Russ Tamblin like wakes up and they say that's actually a very interesting shot with the background where he wakes up and he opens the window and then you see the whole city turn on all. I the mean, lights. there's some great stuff. That's some um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and there's like there's some really beautiful photography of Tokyo mm-hmm. in this scene because there's a lot of stuff going on sort of at dusk. Yeah. yeah. So there's these really great like purples yeah. and and sort of red colors. It's it's, yeah. it's great. Beautiful um, and photography. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah, so off to the mountains. So the army now has a way to trap them. And, uh, you know, like any you know good action film, they're maps. Right. They're maps, and they're saying, okay, the Coast Guard has blocked them from here. We're right here. We're going to send in a special troop with special, you know, laser beams specifically designed to kill them here. And, you know, you see the, yeah. the miniature tanks. And uh, once again, you know, peak of perfection. Like, they're not playing around these uh miniatures are like given like full uh you know uh, the full treatment yeah you know they, they are they're all, they're not just being like pushed from behind there's like they have engines <laughs> by a broom handle yeah by you know uh so they're able to get a lot of you know good shots and establish you know yeah. story structure by using these uh well uh refined uh special effects um 
So it, it seems yeah. like this this next military strike part takes up like the middle third of the movie. Yes, because it's it's pretty drawn out. I mean, it feels like thirty five minutes worth yeah. of stuff because um, there's there's waves to the attack. Right. Because the first part of the attack is simply guarding uh, this farm with yeah. there's a bunch of pigs. pigs. And they don't want the pigs to get eaten. Yeah. So they line up all these That's trucks. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and they shine the lights. Yeah. On on the green gargantua, uh, just as he's coming in to like eat one yeah. of the pigs or whatever. And that whole sequence is like five or six minutes at yeah. least. Uh, and then they do some more stuff, and they they bring in like so they take it to another level where it's like okay they go lights, then they have the second wave is tanks. Yeah. Heavy guns, machine guns, and uh, helicopters. Yeah, and they weren't supposed to attack. They were going to wait because yeah. there was the idea that, ah, wait, if we if we shoot him, his cells might break apart and right. there'll be more. So, um, but so yeah. So, they, 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 they get into a situation where they have to attack. Yes. And they start attacking Gaia, and he um, gets... He kind of gets his ass kicked, quite yeah. frankly. I mean, but he retaliates. He retaliates, and he retaliates in a very satisfying way because he runs up to the sort of uh, the the tank line or whatever, mm-hmm. and he just grabs. He keeps grabbing tanks and throwing them, and they keep nailing houses. Yes, like I counted it. He he throws. Uh, a tank and it hits a house five times in a row. Yes, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, and I it's think, like he's got perfect aim. Yeah, and I think it makes sense because the houses had lights on. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. You yeah. Know. That actually does make sense. So, um, yeah. So he does that, um, and then they send in the troops with the lasers. The lasers start shooting at him. Or before this, that, this yeah, is like, and now I think at long last, this is the premiere of the fully formed Maser cannon. Yes. Right. I think, to my knowledge, I, yeah, because uh, like this uh, is Monsters, the, this is the model that yeah, goes to the rest of the movies. Yeah, because Monster Zero had something similar previously, and then we know there was the um, atomic array well, in right. uh, Mothra. It but all this started is like with the, the full yeah, the, the Markalep Farps, yeah, or whatever. Markalep Mysteri- Farps, yeah. But there, there's no farping here. This yeah. is full Mazer. Yeah, uh, no farping around. So Gara gets his ass handed to him. He is like pretty beat up, bloody. He looks like. That big bloody <laughs> jolly green giant. Well, uh, yeah, like they've got the ma- it's yeah. like multiple prongs of attack. They've got the this sort of laser tripwire mm. that's just like hitting his shin. Yeah, which looks very painful. And then they electrocute then, the water. Then they electrocute the water, so like they they force him with the masers into the water, and then the water's all electric. So it's like they're really, really yeah. They like, want him dead. Yeah. And uh, it looks like he's dying. Yeah. And he, he's pretty much done for. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another gargantua yeah. shows up. Sanda, Sanda. makes, uh, makes uh, his appearance on the scene, makes yes. his deb- debut. Um, and he pulls, he pulls uh, him, he pulls Gaia to, to safety. Yeah. And cause... saves him. And, and it's the end of about 35 minutes worth of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all sort of ushered in with the Fuku Bay's Operation L yeah. uh, military march. And um, very, very cool and features a lot of the stuff. It features a shot where uh, Gaida is, is knocked down and the mazers are shooting him through the trees and like they 
like cut like fifty trees in half. Yeah, and he's like. And he's, like, crawling, like, really fast or whatever, which that shot was reused. in Gigan and Megalon. Well, yeah, like, that shot was used as stock footage in Gigan, and then the stock footage of that stock footage was used in Megalon. So, that's awesome. (laughs) Um, That tells you how great this film was, is the fact that they, you know, bothered to copy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, now... And they they go they cuts back to Russ Tamblin at the institute or whatever, and again he's just sort of rubbing his temples or whatever, and like Russ Tamblin, there is a second Frankenstein, you know, like he's brown, you know, this is an amazing impossible miracle of science, and mm-hmm. they, all the by the way, you know, your Frankenstein is cleared, and there's all this other yeah. stuff, and Russ Tamblin's just like he is not impressed at yeah. all by anything that's going on he's just like yeah. yeah i know i knew our gargantua didn't do any of that stuff yeah find some more cells come on can we you know let's go yeah so um, they find more really awesome. and they find that yeah and th- this is where it becomes clear that like if they shoot at him more the way they have been they will create more yeah possibly more gyras yeah. um and you know the military has decided you know napalm yeah. Napalm will kill the oxygen and therefore kill the cells. Uh, so they know Gyra and Sanda are in the mountains and they know that because Gyra needs to be in the water that he would be around the mountain lakes. So, um, yeah, they're closing. Yeah. So uh, naturally everyone goes to the mountains for some hiking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they, go, you know, they go for much singing. Yeah. And, and uh, Nick, or not, the uh, fuck. <laughs> Russ Tamblin uh, mentions to Kumi Muzano, like, Something like you know, yeah. When there when there are monsters around, uh, people, uh, you you seems to spring up, and he, he correlates this to when the Nazis took over Paris. How like young people suddenly flocked to the nightclubs. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, um, very out of nowhere. Yeah, and it seemed this this speech by Russ Tamblin when he brings up about like in trying times the youth still flourishes yeah. or whatever seemed sort of like a theme or something that that Honda was trying to push through onto the movie with no basis of of anything else going on in the movie. Right. It just seems like, Russ Tamblin, say this speech I wrote, that's not supported by anything that's going on right now. Maybe in Japanese, his character was supposed to be more, I don't know. Not Buddhist, but you know, a very understanding person. Yeah. He, like as a scientist, he understands that this is well, this is just the way things are, you know. And he's he's very logical, whereas uh, Kumi Musuno is very uh, emotional. Yeah. You know, so I could see how in the Japanese version, with him being dubbed over by probably somebody with much more energy, uh, <laughs> that uh, it would make sense. Or if he's being like uh, read off by a subtitle, we could read it as more. Yeah, energetic than Russ Tamblin actually is. <laughs> Things get a little bit more energetic when uh, Gyra appears in the woods and sort of this. There's like they go sort of deeper into the woods and they've kind of got this shallow trail, both sides of which which are flanked by very tall pine trees mm-hmm. and there's a lot of mist. Yeah. At the same time, you've got this group of uh, I don't know. 20 year old college kids sun tribe people sun tribe people all like singing the song going along and they spot Gaira and they uh run back Mm -hmm. and uh and so they run past uh Russ Tamblin and Kumi was like 
it's a, there's a gargantua. So Rusty was like, let's run back to the car. He's like, I don't know why we came here in the first place. <laughs> or That's the, the reason why thing. we came here in the first place has happened. <laughs> and now we're totally unprepared. So as they're running, Kubi Muzuno, as you do, trips and falls off a cliff. Yeah. But uh, catches a like a branch. Mm. And she gets all covered in, in sweat. And uh, she's breathing really deeply. It's great. And uh, and then she falls. But luckily, Sanda comes out of nowhere. And uh, he, a big rock falls on his leg. So he hurts his leg, which is important for the rest of the movie. But he manages to catch Kumi Muzuno. Mm-hmm. So he, he saves her. And he establishes and her, himself his, his, as a goodie. Yeah, he establishes himself as a good guy and, and sort of reconnects that link, maybe, that they mm-hmm. had from Frankenstein Conquers the World. I mm-hmm. don't know. Um, but, like, yeah. the uh, It could be Muzuno kind of looks at him, tries to talk to him for a second. It's like, you know me, you know me, you know, do you remember me and all this stuff. And He just kind of looks at her and then goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, but now his leg is kind of broken and he limps for the rest of the movie. And then it cuts to an empty boat uh, mm. for no reason. Well, I think earlier on in the scene, there's like a couple like rowing in their boat. It cuts back to the same boat and the boat's empty. So it's implying that like Ira is around someplace and yeah. ate the people in the boat. And I he, guess. He, he clearly has the itis uh, because he's like resting it off. Um, yeah, it looks like, yeah, yeah, the next scene, it cuts to a uh, guy sleeping. Yeah. And I was like, what is this, snore of the gargantuans? <laughs> it's awful. It's uh, a terrible joke. And uh, then, uh, sorry. without words, uh, Sanda realizes what is going on, and because he is, a, I guess, a vegan or whatever, is pissed. Yeah, this is the uh, most complex relationship ever depicted between two yeah. kaiju in a movie, because Sanda comes in, he sees Gaira has, has eaten more people. Mm-hmm. And he makes the the moral decision to begin fighting his brother, mm-hmm. I guess you could call him. And so he reaches in and picks out one of those perfectly manicured uh, fake trees that we were talking about earlier and, and begins... To beat the tar out of Gyra. Well, yeah. I mean, he increases the amount of, of, of fiber in his diet. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um, so uh, the war has, has begun. Yep. And there's really not too much left. I mean, they, they kind of... Um, you know, Russ Tamblin and Kubi Muzuno meets, I think, with the UN or something. Yeah. Like, one last-ditch effort, like, don't kill, kill the brown one. Brown He's one. nice. And they're just like, yeah, we're gonna kill them both, or whatever. And they kind of go back and forth. It yeah. doesn't really matter. Maybe the, the conference is in Tokyo, and that's why they're there. Yeah. Um, so they, but they still assume that, um, the Gargantuas are in the mountains. But, yeah. They have followed them to yeah. the city. And, and they uh, lay waste to this really, really large set piece. Yeah. Uh, both of them. Basically, uh, the rest, well, like, you know, because Kumi Muzuno still wants to save the brown one. Yes. So, like, she's, like, running around, and you have this really kind of cool, suspenseful, claustrophobic, kind of scary scene where, like, Gaira is is, like, following... Or like, almost like stalking Kumi Muzuno. Yes. And like, and like, at one point, like actually chases her and Russ Tamblin into a subway. Yeah. And like, 
they run from one entrance of the subway down to the next, and God was there, and he punches the thing. Yeah. So they run all the way back, and um, but like they stop just short. Yeah. And then Kimi Muzano peeks her head around, and for some reason assumes it's Sanda's feet she's looking at now, mm-hmm. and she runs up. It's Gaira, and he grabs her, and like he's about to eat her, and then Sanda shows up, and then Gaira loses interest in Kubi Buzno and drops her like fifty feet yeah. onto like concrete steps, and she's <laughs> she's knocked out pretty yes. well. Um, no I blood. think she has a concussion, yeah. <laughs> um, but she's basically down for the count. Yeah, and uh, so Russ Tamlin picks her up and uh, carries her down the stairs, uh, a la Battleship the yeah. Tempkin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and the rest of the movie is just them fighting. Yeah, mostly just them fighting. So uh, and really good fight. Yeah. And I think a complaint we had about the ending fight of Frankenstein versus Baragon was that it was too long. This one is a long fight, maybe even equal in size, but it's so well paced. Yeah, it's so well paced. They keep moving to new sets. Yes, and they keep having new elements. In the fight. Right. You know, like, they the keep... first part of it, the military's still involved, yeah. and then, like, they are fighting the military and themselves, and yeah. then they keep changing things, yeah. so it's so it's interesting. The suspense keeps building, because in Frankenstein versus Paragon, they were just near the... They were just on that mountain set piece, and then yeah. it breaks open, and it blows up. With this, like, they're in one part of the city, then they move to another part, then they, they're slowly moving their way towards right. the docks, right. towards the ocean. And I think the army... Wanted that way so that way they could blow them up there. So they keep moving. Uh, and the miniatures move with them. Like they're very, you know, yeah. uh, detailed you get, shots. You get a really nice sense yeah. of geography. Yeah. It's like, okay, now they're there. Now they've yeah. literally destroyed every building there. Yeah. So now they're moving like a few blocks <laughs> yeah. north or whatever. And then they like flatten that part of the city. Mm. And And I really, really like this fight because it seems satisfying and visceral in a way that that many kaiju battles are not right um and it's it's no coincidence that it takes place in a city Mm -hmm. so it's like this is sort of what you always kind of imagine where it's like it's two monsters literally throwing each other into buildings but Mm -hmm. in other films like this that might happen like once yeah or something but like in this movie they throw each other into like Tons of buildings. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole end of the movie. It's just them hip-checking each other into buildings, yeah. you know? And it goes on for, yeah. like, ten minutes. And you're just like, it's so many money shots. It's so much good stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you're just like... And when the buildings break apart, you can see, like, little staircases and stuff yeah. in them. So it's like, they built yeah. these buildings, like, completely, like, from the outside in and stuff. Yeah. Like, the amount so, of detail... Yeah. And this is what happens when professionals are given, you know, a lot of money and a reasonably good script. You yeah. Know, they, um, they're able to make gold with it. And that's uh, what this ending fight is. It's a summing up of, like, everything they've learned over the years. Yeah. Um, and you really, you really feel it in a way that, like, it's some of, like, the way yeah. battle fights. Yeah. Not to get one final chance to dig in on the high size series, but like yeah, you know, yeah, something dig like, into my veins. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> something like you know, the end of Space Godzilla, where it's just a ray battle. It's like I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, it's it has to be personal. You have to be yeah. like you, they have to be right there. You know, there's this yeah. there's a part where Gyro actually grabs Sanda's head and is just like slamming it yeah. over and over again onto yeah. the you know the ground and like breaking yeah. it through the street, and it's just like. Yes! Yes. And, like, the problem is in Space Godzilla, it is, uh, 
again, like with the rays, with the detachment of the personal, it like ruins the meaning of the fight. Right. You know, because it feels as though that Godzilla almost has nothing at stake. Because he's not into it. Right. You this know, is not... Kind of, they can't rest on their laurels. Yeah. You know, this, like this the, is the like... the Korea fight scenes in, like, the, the Star Wars prequels. You know, yeah. the, there's just nothing that's too clean and pretty. Right, right. You know, this is rough. Yeah, this they are, great. like, hitting each other with shit. Yeah. Like, like it's, you know, trees, buildings, bricks, ships. ships <laughs> you know, full, you know... Thank God. That's great. And, uh, and then the ultimate day ex machina, because right. the, the army, like... You know, it was dropping, you know, I presume napalm or some other yeah. form of explosive ordinances on them. And, you know, I guess God must be pissed because he sends a volcano. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like 15 yeah. things converge yeah. to you kill know. these guys at one time. So even nature does not, yeah. you know, finds this wrong. So they are sort of unceremoniously, they're out in the ocean now, and yes, they are, they're consumed by this... New volcano, mm-hmm. which is just a uh, just arised, That's right. and um, you know Russ Tamlin is talking to Kumi Muzuno in a hospital now, and they're like they've lost track of him. You get the idea that they've been fighting for like hours yes. because it's like daytime uh, at the end of it, and it's definitely night at the beginning of the mm-hmm. fight. So they've been fighting a long time, yeah, which is great. I love it when they do that in these movies. But basically, Kenji Sahara comes in and says, "Hey." We've lost track of them. There's a fucking volcano next to where they were fighting. They're probably super dead. I'm sorry, you know. And Russ Tamlin just sort of like, well, I thought I lost the most important person. You, Kimmy Mizuno, and sort of like strokes her face with a flower or something. So, like, um, I guess they're fucking on the side. I don't know. And uh, then that's it, you know. Yeah. Come back to a shot of the newly formed volcano off the coast of Tokyo. From death comes life. Yeah. Honda was much more fixated on the whole, like, the cells getting blown apart and growing new gargantuas thing than mm-hmm. I think anyone else really noticed or cared. Right. Because he, he was, like, really concerned with the fact that, like, oh, well, now there's going to be a whole new, you know, group of gargantuas that are going to grow up. So, like, he wrote that into the, the, the script that, like, the original ending, what the, uh, the volcano was supposed to destroy all of Tokyo. Really? supposed to wipe out Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And thusly, like, destroying all the cells. Mm-hmm. So, like, it would be a much more kind of complete... But they stopped short of that. Maybe they finally ran out of money. Yeah. Because <laughs> that sounds pretty extreme. Yeah. Even for Mishiro Honda. Um, but, I believe uh, there was another cutscene, which I read about many, many years ago. So, the authenticity could be off. But there was a scene with a sea snake. Or a plan scene with the, some kind of sea snake that Gara was supposed to kill and eat. Okay. Like, kind of like the octopus scene, where it like attacks some like f- people fishing and Gara eats the snake. So um, I had not heard that. I, I, be I believe it was on uh, Toho TohoKingdom.com, which uh, back in the early aughts was basically the. One of the few places you could get at least reasonably reliable information on Godzilla. That and Barry's Temple of Godzilla. Yes. That was it. <laughs> Those two sites. Yes. <laughs> um, um, so that's that's it for the plot of the film. I did want to say a couple of things. 
uh, during the 84th annual Academy Awards, there was a sort of a supercut, one of the needless montages that they used to make that show, which should be like an hour and a half, like four hours plus. Yeah. Was uh, various actors and artists and things talking about some of their most seminal experiences with the movies. Wikipedia actually has this incorrectly listed. Mm-hmm. They, they say it's like they've got Brad Pitt on one of the montages is saying that War of the Gargantuas was the reason why he got into acting. That is not no, correct. That was his first film. It's his, what he said because I remember because yeah. I was watching it live. Yeah, exactly. What he says is that was the first movie he saw yeah. in a theater. So I'm just clarifying that for anyone listening right now. Yeah. Uh, it was Brad Pitt's first movie that he saw. Oh. Uh, so I would like, totally that, be that down. is amazing. I would totally be down seeing Brad Pitt as a gargantuan. That <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, number two, the song uh, "The Words Get Stuck in My Throat" mm-hmm. uh, has a place in the heart of uh, the band Devo. And they normally end their shows, or they did, when they did like encores, they would do like their own specially rewritten version mm-hmm. of the words get stuck in my throat. And they, you know, on all the records and stuff, like, well, the one time it was on one of their official records, which there was a compilation album in 2000, they list Akira Fukube as like one of the like guys who wrote it. So huh. it's like, it's that song, you know? Hmm. Uh, so that's crazy. Yeah. Um, as far as like additional appearances of the Gargantuas, sort of sparse, you know, they, they reference the fact that the events of this film took place in Godzilla against Mechagodzilla mm-hmm. from 2001. Uh, supposedly the uh, kaiju-esque fight scene in Crank 2 was inspired by this specific, um, uh, this specific movie. Yeah. Um, not... I, I don't have any proof of that. But, I, what yeah. I will say is if anyone out there listening hasn't seen Crank 2, stop whatever you're doing yeah. and immediately watch it because that movie takes things to the final level. And yes, yes. they do Jason Statham and the the bad guy in that movie turn into Kaiju, Kaiju. Uh, towards the yes. end of that movie. It's for no reason. Oh, yes. For no reason. At all. Uh, and it is It is glorious. totally insane. Um. As far as the Gargantuas themselves, the this is a very sort of recent uh, development. This is just in the last year. But um, they have at long last finally properly entered into Godzilla fiction, uh, by which I mean uh, the good folks at IDW Comics, uh, they have a comic called Godzilla Rulers of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And they finally had an issue where the two gargantuas fight Godzilla. Hmm. So at long last kind of really cementing in the fact that, I mean, I guess Godzilla gets Mechagodzilla did that, but like, you know, sort of like once and for all saying, no, this is the same universe. Right. They are, you know, they could potentially fight one another, which I think is really cool. And I will find and read that comic at some point. Um, I would really like to see the Gargantuas in more stuff. I think they're awesome. Uh, the Green Gargantua Gara was in a uh, Japanese uh, show not too long ago that they're bringing back. I forget what it's called, but it's like it's like one of those uh, you know Ultraman ripoff mm-hmm. things, like super super deal. Yeah. I think it's the same guy who fought like Gabra. You know, he's fighting Gaira oh, yeah. or whatever. So, um, anyways, like, but that's just like, they're basically just using the suit. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but like making a new one because that's weird because the suit's been destroyed for like forty years. Yeah. But anyways, the point is that they're very like their other appearances have been extremely obscure, mm. and uh, it's, it's something I would like to see is like if they would have kept making those Godzilla fighting games like Save the Earth or uh, Unleashed or whatever that they would show up right. in those like the PlayStation Two GameCube mm. era. Um, but they never showed up in those. Yeah. And I remember this always being like a very obscure one. And I, you know, if it wasn't, it, it was a long time before I had heard it being established as a really good one. Yeah. Like, as far as I knew, this, this was like a, almost a Gamera movie, basically, where it's just like, okay, I saw that next. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think like just over the years, like its reputation, uh, had, been built. Yeah. I, I know it's Guillermo del Toro's like one of, if not his favorite uh kaiju movie. Kaiju film, yeah. Um, um I, I you know, when I first saw it, it was years ago. Uh, you know, it was like I was a little guy and I just saw it on TV and I did not know what the hell was going on. Uh, I watched it for about forty minutes and I kept waiting for Godzilla to show up. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was like there's these things that sort of look like King Kong fighting each other. And yeah. I can tell this is like a Toho movie. Like, mm. even then, I could tell. Yeah. It's kind you of know. like Shaw Brothers. There's yeah. that studio look. Yeah, you yeah. Just, you, you, you know what's going on. I was like, why? What? It, mm. it was just seemed so strange. And back then, especially, and kind of scary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, it just was sort of its own thing. And, and it was one of those movies that I saw one time. Mm-hmm. And then went 20 years without yeah. seeing. Like, it really was until they, uh, you know, released that DVD back in, like, 2007, I think mm-hmm. it was, or 2008. That was the first time I'd seen War of Gargantuan since, like, 1992 yeah. or something. So it's like, it went a very long time. And since yeah. then, I've watched it a few more times, and I really, really enjoy it. When I first saw this, I guess, with you, uh, what? Three, four months ago. So that was the first time you'd ever seen this. First time I had ever seen wow. it. Wow. Been many okay. been, you know, much anticipation. I had seen the Frankenstein film like years ago. Um but this was like one of the last big Toho monster films I hadn't seen. And there are still a couple I need to check out and of course review to uh, the lovely people out in uh Yeah. Podcast land. Uh but yeah. Uh no, it was great. Uh it was well worth the wait. Uh, and I think probably had I been younger watching it, I probably would have, you know, shit my pants. Because, uh, you know, watching Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla as a 12-year-old was terrifying. You know, I was just like, oh, Jesus, there's like blood and jaws being ripped off. Like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh, so naturally I had to watch more. Uh, <laughs> and we did. Um, you, I would like to thank everybody for listening to the program. We are on Twitter at uh, Michael Kelly at Godzilla Pod War. We're also on Facebook at the Godzilla Pod War Hour. And um, yeah, we have a Tumblr. Yes. I've seen it. I've yes. seen it before. So I know it exists. You've tumbled. We've tumbled. You've tumbled in that area. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, uh, yeah. 
we're winding things down here. Winding <laughs> we're running out, yeah. but, uh, but no, keeping I've, it going. Thank you for you know, all the likes, the comments uh, on iTunes and uh, on Facebook. The fan art has been wonderful. Yeah. It, uh, Tracer Anthony and uh, Emerson Green and Emerson Green both coming back with strong pieces yeah. for so, Frankenstein Conquers the World. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. You're uh, shining spots in our otherwise normally dull and depressing days. <laughs> Very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so thank thank you all uh for for listening and uh yeah all right well we'll see you guys next time good fight good night happy hunting <laughs>